Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Thank you, Joseph, and hi everyone. Welcome to Training with Casey. I'm Casey Cover, your host, and today let's talk about training plans, specifically the global training plan. So maybe you've never heard that particular uh, tool or name, and maybe that's because that's the name I gave this particular tool. So I'll bet you a lot of other trainers have something similar, but I oversaw the training of lots of animals. I think at one time it was, I don't know, at least 29 at one time. And now I want to go back and count them all, but let's not do that. It was just more than 15. Anyway, so what I've noticed in working with professional trainers is that many companion animal trainers are hired mostly to solve animal behavior problems. So you've got obedience instructors and dog, you know, bird dog trainers and detection trainers. There are many specialties, uh, service dogs, So there's lots of task-oriented training, but it's estimated that over 90% of the business of most companion animal trainers is so-called behavior modification, where you need to change the way the animal is interacting with people. And a lot of times the people are kind of under duress, the owners, And they want to get this problem solved, but they weren't necessarily interested in training their own animal or in more extensive training. Yeah, they may think, well, I don't care if the dog sits. I just want him not to bite somebody. This is a shame. This is a shame. Because as somebody who has trained animals for a long time, let's not go into it. It is such fun and it forges a deep, beautiful relationship if it's done well. And for zoo and ocean area trainers, we have a totally different scope of training. It's generally our job to prepare the animal for living his best possible life over the entire lifespan it's cradle to grave so from the time that we teach the animal to accept food from us to the time that uh, we even have to take them for euthanasia their education has been our responsibility. So how do we carry out this 
responsibility. Well, and even before that, let's ask a question. Does it make a difference? Does an animal in managed care at a zoo or an oceanarium have a better life than an animal that's a pet or a companion animal, like a, you know, maybe a horse that you ride? And really, a lot of times they do. And it's because their lives are so enriched and they're so well prepared. And we'll talk about more specifics of that. So one of the big payoffs, the reason I know this can be true, is to look at the lifespan of the animals in managed care compared to the animals in the wild and even pet animals. So I have taken a lot of animals through a training curriculum that covers, you know, lots of different topics and lots of critical living skills. And what I see is a whole group of excep exceptionally long-lived animals. My two gray seals both broke longevity records at the national, well, they broke them uh, for the world, but they were at the national zoo. My sea lions, the two that I worked with specifically lived very long lives. Um, and I've mentioned this repeatedly because it's so important to know this and keep the goal in mind, long, healthy, healthy, happy lives. So, I uh, will stop there and just say that it makes a long life. And that means also the animal is probably very well adapted and adjusted so that they're not biting people. They're not dangerous. They're not irritating their owners to death. Instead, they're living in harmony wherever they are. That's the goal, right? For the animal to understand how to operate his environment, how to live his best life. So when we start training with, you know, companion animal owners, we can change their outlook over and over and over again. I had started out with people that just wanted to solve a problem. But when they saw how easy, fun, and rewarding it was even to solve problems, how much it deepened their relationship with their animals, because really that's why people have animals. They may love to do obedience or whatever, but you know the biggest thing is they want to be friends with animals. And so training just forges these incredible relationships. So what does it take? What does it take to get the animal from unruly or even dangerous to being a trusted colleague who works collaboratively with us? And one thing it definitely takes is planning and diligence. We need to give the animal a well-rounded education. And to help in this, I recommend 
my global training plan. And that's a tool I developed for seals and sea lions, but which I have adapted for many other animals. I have a horse version. I have a dog version. And it covers all kinds of things, but let's explore it today on a very basic level. Let's look at the kinds of training we need to do and how to plan that training. So we're not going to break it down into individual behaviors today. Although we do, in real life, we break it right down to the little tiny pieces. So zookeepers and marine mammal trainers are usually very busy and they have to make the most of their time to get the most important training done, much less uh, little extra projects. So it's important to set priorities so you get your most important training done on time. So back in the day, my priorities were these and in this order. So the first would be safety. The second would be husbandry behaviors. That's where the animal be, uh, cooperates in their daily care activities. Third would be medical care. Four would be environmental changes. So that would include things like going into the public area, having the vets there, having visitors there. So it's the same behaviors, but in a changing environment. And experienced trainers know that when you change the environment, you change the training. We kind of have to redo a lot of training over and over again in various environments before we really get it bomb-proof. And then number five was educational demonstrations. So we taught the animal to show certain behaviors and abilities on cue so that we could introduce them to the audience and explain them and let the, let the audience really enjoy and appreciate these animals. Now, as things have changed today, I have a different set of priorities and I'll share them with you. Everything's the same except, and I had to think about this, does it go first or second? But definitely at least second, right after safety or maybe before safety is mental mapping, vocabulary, and cognitive tools. And the reason it can go before is that when an animal comes into a zoo or an aquarium, the uh, they're in quarantine. They're going to be in quarantine for at least 30 days because when you ship an animal or when an animal's first born, uh, they're under they have to adapt to their new environment. And so that's not the greatest time to do heavy training. You need to let them just get through at least 30 days and adjust to their new environment before you start really challenging them with training. But what you can do is start naming everything, everything that they see, all the people, the places, the foods, the toys, the devices, the events, the days of the week, the amounts of time, directions. 
It goes on and on. And we can cross-relate all those things. We just did a podcast on mental mapping. That's what it's all about. Just guiding the animal through the environment, sharing with them what we call everything so that we can refer to things together, building their vocabulary and interrelating their vocabulary and the um, features in their environment so they understand everything as well as possible. And we teach other cognitive tools like bridging, you know, where we give the animal feedback on how well he's doing and conditional statements. It goes on and on. So that is now what I consider the most important thing, even more important than husbandry, because the mental mapping and vocabulary and cognitive tools is going to accelerate my training so much that I'll still get all the husbandry training done in the same amount of time that I would if I didn't do the cognitive training first. Okay. When I say I don't do it first, once I start these things, they're going to continue throughout the animal's life in much the same way as I'm a lifelong learner myself. I'm constantly taking classes and reading books and articles and discussing things with people because the fact is learning is fun and it's empowering and it helps us. So why would we ever stop? And it's the same for animals. So the new list is safety, mental mapping, vocabulary, cognitive tools, husbandry, medical care, environmental change, and educational demonstrations. Now, if you were working with a companion animal, instead of educational demonstrations, you could have any and all of the tasks and hobbies that you do together whether it is, you know, uh, he'll work to music or fly ball or agility or search and recovery. Uh, You would do it after you've done your basic training to make sure the animal's cooperative in his daily care and safe in his husbandry care and safe with you. Okay, so now, For a global training plan, we need another tool, and that's a timeline. In fact, we need two of them. The timelines are where we take a look at when we need to have this training done by. So uh, medical training is very important, but it needs to be in place before the annual checkup or the planned procedure. And especially with zoo animals, this can be complicated. For example, let's say uh, sea lions are um, born, you know, May, mostly in June. And so they probably had an exam in June. So they're probably going to have the next exam about a year later. The vets would probably like to look at them in June again. Well, guess what? June is breeding season. It's when the animals give birth, nurse their babies, breed again, and often in many uh, types of animals change their fur. They'll molt or 
uh, change their fur. And so that's a lot of stress on them. So if you want to be able, well, it's not just stress, by the way, they also don't want to eat like they normally do. And in the wild and in captivity or in managed care, an animal can go weeks without eating at all. And that's not because the food isn't available. It's because it's breeding season and all kinds of changes occur. And the animals are very preoccupied with uh, the whole breeding process. So anything you need in June needs to be taught by at least April because they're going to start making changes in how they eat and how they interact in May. So we make two different timelines to guide our training plans. And the first one is a lifeline that maps out all the major milestones in the animal's life and when we expect them to occur. The first vet visit, the first time they have to travel, the first time they have to go into the public area, the first time that uh, summer visitors are going to converge on the zoo or the park. But that's not all I do. I also do an annual training plan because many of the skills need to be buff, bumped up just before they're needed again. So every summer, the visitation at zoos and aquariums skyrockets. So it's good to make sure the animals feel comfortable with increased numbers of people and all the different distractions and variables that those people bring. Extra noise, extra motion, uh, lack of privacy maybe. I mean, what I could see, the animals do, did not mind a lack of privacy, but if they did, we would want to have them ready before all these people came to stare at them all day because stare at them they do. And the animals seem to love it and the people love it. But even when you love something, it can still be a stress. And it's best if we uh, hone our coping skills before we're kind of immersed in that demand. All right, so the yearly training plan would cover things like, uh, when does it get hot? When does it get cold? When is it really rainy? When is it really windy? Uh, when do the visitors really increase? When do they really decrease? When does the demonstration schedule change? When does breeding se season happen? And again, there's training that you need to do before breeding season, but you also need to prep for breeding season every single year. So we do all this. And it uh, we make a list of the dates that we need all these different behaviors by. So we have a list of priorities, and then we have a list of events that guide us for when we need to have certain training milestones accomplished. 
And then we go to work to actually create the training plan. Now, if you take classes with me, you're going to study these and create your own training plans, and I will share mine with you. But today, we don't need to go into all that detail. It's enough to just think about it a little bit. So let's take sea lions. Sea lions are trained all over the place, and maybe you never thought about the fact that just like a college student, they generally have a curriculum. They have behaviors that don't have anything to do with shows or demonstrations, but have to do with their well-being and their ability to thrive in managed care and to allow their human colleagues to thrive also. So the first would be safety. And what might those behaviors be? Well, they need to have respect for the bucket. They need to not push their head into the bucket when they're walking next to you or when the bucket is sitting on the beach or you're feeding a group of animals. That's very unsafe. They need to respect the trainer. They need to not try to take train uh, food from the trainer until it's offered. And by the way, they can become so good at this. I used to jump in the water with my sea lions and swim with them. And because I'm this kind of a rascally trainer, I would actually put little butterfish, which was their preferred fish, in between my fingers and sometimes my toes. And then I would do the side stroke out to the island in the middle of the pool. And the sea lions would swim right next to me. But they knew the drill. These fish were for them. All they needed to do was wait just a few minutes and all these fish would be theirs. And so they were very good. They would just turn away from me and swim right next to me, facing away from me the entire trip. Outstanding. That's what we want. Now, even though I'm a rascal, I'm not a fool. I didn't just jump in the water with fish between my fingers and toes, this was another whole training process because I didn't want to wait for that ill-fated day when a trainer just happened to fall in the water with, you know, fish in their hands or a bucket of fish or fish in a pouch and have that be a free-for-all with the sea lions. So instead, we made it part of their regular education. Okay, so Going back under safety, we have respect for the bucket, respect for the trainer, respect for the other sea lions during the feeding. Nobody grabs the fish from another sea lion and they don't grab it when it's being tossed to the other sea lion. By the way, there's a whole art form in that, tossing fish to sea lions. <clears throat> I'm very good at it if I do say so myself. You need to learn to walk beside the trainer. They need to learn to respect the gates and wait for the okay before they pass through the gates. They need to know a recall, to wait, to drop it, to leave it, and to retrieve something. A major problem for animals in managed care is that people will drop things into their exhibits. And these things could be dangerous. And so it's a lot better to just pay the animals that anytime they find anything, I'll pay you if you bring it back to me. 
be delighted to trade up for that item. And uh, they're happy to do that. And it keeps them much safer. So then our next priority in the old way of doing things was husbandry. So what would those behaviors be? Getting on the scale for weight readings, going into the squeeze crate and allowing the door to be shut, going into the squeeze crate and lying down and allowing the crate to be squeezed down. Now, in our training system, we actually didn't squeeze the animals down with the door shut. The animal had to want to do this and had to commit to it. So they would come into the squeeze crate, turn around, lay down. We called it get little. And they would lay down as flat as they could on the ground. And then using cycles, we would work that process until the animals would get squeezed down as small as we could get them. And this seemed to be very relaxing for them. They ended up loving this. Temple Grandin talked about it for herself. She had seen how much cows love this. <coughs> Excuse me. One second. <coughs> Well, that's a first note to self. Make sure you always have water. Okay, so these sea lions learn to cooperate fully to go into their squeeze crates. And on the bottom of the squeeze crate is uh, something that we also put under the medical behaviors. And that is a body board. And a body board was a board that had a lot of seat belts on it. And when the animals laid down, we could strap down these uh, seat belts, which was done with the animals' full cooperation. It kind of extended, you know, the pressure rest. And then they could be moved out and onto a table so the vets could examine them and so forth. So other husbandry behaviors were eye exams, eye ointment application, mouth exams, tooth brushing, and mouth swabs. Well, after all that, can there be anything left for medical? There surely is. The animals had to learn to cooperate with full body exams. They would lay on the, both the back and on their stomach or on their sides. They would move their flippers up and down for us. They'd move their tail up and down, their hind flippers up and down, their head up and down. In other words, we could ask them to move in any place we wanted to using simple targets. They also learned to cooperate with blood draws. This was really important. If you had to anesthetize 
a marine mammal for routine blood collection, you put them at great risk from the anesthesia. Marine mammals have very specialized physiology and it makes them more susceptible to anesthesia problems. Okay, they need to allow spraying of the body for topical medications for uh, keeping them cool and wet in, you know, like if you're traveling with them, they can overheat very quickly, by the way. So the water spray was really important. Uh, they learned to take bitter medications. We might put medications in things that would mask the taste. For example, all the supplements and a, and a lot of the antibiotics and so forth were given inside a fish. However, there's also the situation where you simply have to give an oral liquid. And we didn't lie to the animals. We didn't tell them, oh, this is going to be great. We tell them, this tastes terrible. Would you please eat it anyway? I'm doing this because I hope it's going to help you. We taught them to allow ultrasound, to allow milk and urine collection, and much, much more. Maybe another time we'll go further into the global training plan because there's a lot to it. It's a specialized training skill that not everybody takes the time to learn, but boy, does it improve your training. It makes the training a lot more fun. I played the violin, or I think I did. My monkey didn't ever agree with that. She thought I kind of like created misery with the violin. But anyway, when you first are learning to play the violin, it's not fun for anyone. There's a lot of learning that has to happen before you actually create music. But when you create music, it's so wonderful that you're really glad that you went through the effort it took to become fluent with some of your skills so that you could be a musician. And with training, it's the same thing. When you become fluent with your training skills, it's a lot more fun to be a trainer. So I just want to give you one more heads up about the training plan with SATs. And in SATs, there's a very important next step. And that is the way we further organize the training plan. You see, we look at behaviors as being made up of pieces of little behaviors. And we name all these pieces. And then we can combine them and tell the animal what pieces are going to be in this new behavior. And we can just ask them, can you do that? So we can always create a behavior from the very beginning just using targets. Targets allow us to show the animal where we want them to be, how we want them to move, how long we want them to be there. But if you're going to teach more than two or three things, it's a lot faster to teach targeting skills and targeting concepts.
things like, uh, you know, target your uh, muzzle here. Target your muzzle here for one count, for two counts, for four, for eight, for 16. Target your left side here. Target your left ear here. Target um, your left ear and your left shoulder and your left hip. And it goes on and on. So the target is the most basic behavior, pretty much. But there are well over six different kinds of targets. And you can add lots of other features to that target to create lots of other behaviors. So one target behavior would be, for example, a high jump. All you need to create a high jump is to raise your target. Similarly, if you want an animal to get up on a chair, you just raise your target so that the only way the animal can get to the target is to get up on the chair. But what happens if you want to teach a sea lion to do the Australian crawl? Where instead of moving both flippers together in a combined stroke, he's now going to move each flipper, you know, like when an animal paces, where he goes, you know, one arm over and the other arm's back, and then, you know, going around like a bicycle wheel, but with his front flippers. So we have a whole process so that we teach overall training very logically. We teach all the basic skills and then we combine them into an infinite number of behaviors and behaviors that the animal understands every little part. And so you can just tell him and then he can work with you to create this thing that you desire. It is great. You're going to love it. And I hope we get a chance to talk about more of it soon. All right. Thanks so much for sharing time with me tonight. And I hope you enjoy this. I hope you go try it out. Please let me know in the comments what you find. Do you use a training plan? And uh, how do you do yours? What do you put on it? All right, take care. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.